0: Okay. Uh, another isolated historical event leading to another isolated his, uh you know piece of of hopefully good advice. That's all I'm that's all I'm proposing to offer here is isolated stories and isolated lessons. So it's it's not uh it's not the unified field theory or anything like that. So just take it for what it's worth. Let's roll on through a page or two here we go we're going to start February 18 1902 and that would be the Battle Creek Sanitarium burning to the ground that you see there the sanitarium by 1902 was a pretty large institution Uh, approximately a thousand beds and um, it was probably, in some ways, much too large. I don't know if I would necessarily want to try and carry the math out in any great, uh, with any great precision, but Ellen White did once say that it would be better to have invested the time and means into 10 separate sanitariums rather than expanding Battle Creek as large as it had been. So, you know, if you want to play the mathematical game, then you could say that the 100-bed hospital is the ideal. I don't know that I believe that, but, you know, whatever you want to do with those numbers, you you figure it out for yourself. It uh, It was a bit big. Not perhaps solely in size, but the problem was that Adventists were becoming congested in Battle Creek. And, um... We, we actually have a commission to go to all the world. <laughs> and it's important that we not lose sight of that. <clears throat> well, anyhow, lots of things that might have gone into that, but this is simply the starting point of our story. The Battle Creek Sanitarium burned to the ground, um, and uh, only one life was lost, which is, I suspect, pretty astounding. How many stories? I I, I think I'm seeing at least... Four stories, possibly five stories there. Um, I don't know how full the facility was at the time, but they managed to get all the patients out. Um, that'd, be, that'd be a, a trick. Uh, the only only person who died was one gentleman who was safely evacuated all the way to the far side of the road. And then suddenly he remembered his mattress he wanted his mattress and a lot of the nurses had wondered about this guy because he'd insisted on bringing his own mattress when he came to the sanitarium and evidently as he was hurrying back into the building to retrieve his mattress someone heard him say that he had all his life savings hidden away in the mattress and evidently, it was enough to sustain him for the rest of his life because he died. So, anyhow, <laughs> Dr. Kellogg was, uh, was was away at the time. And the first that he heard of the sanitarium fire was he was coming back home. He got to Chicago and he was transferring at the uh, Chicago Grand Central or whatever the train station was there. And as he was walking from... Terminal A to Terminal B or however they do that with train stations, uh, he heard the newsboys screaming, you know, extra, extra, read all about it, Battle Creek Sanitarium burns to the ground. Uh, Dr. Kellogg bought a paper, read the first page, quickly got in touch with the steward, I guess, of the train, and said, "I need a lap board and several large pieces of paper and By the time he was back to Battle Creek, he had preliminary drawn plans drawn for a new institution. Uh, I tell you this Kellogg guy was a, was an interesting chap. Um, now, Unfortunately, despite the counsel from Ellen White that it would be best for the lord 's work to spread the work around." Dr. Kellogg's plans called for a newer and larger sanitarium, and um, with a, a level of mm, what shall we say at the time extravagance. Um, apparently, there were two chandeliers built as it was as it was finally built. When uh, Kellogg considered it completed, there were two chandeliers. I'm told that uh, cost a thousand dollars each, uh, which, admittedly, is more than I would pay for a light fixture, uh, but was worth a lot more back in those days. You know, uh, early 1900s, a thousand dollars was probably still worth at least five hundred. I don't know. I'm pretty skeptical when it comes to money. But anyhow, um, marble floors. It was fairly, fairly extravagant by some people's tastes. Ellen White, of course, wrote to him and encouraged him to exercise some different kinds of judgment. <clears throat> well, I already mentioned this morning Dr. Kellogg's ability to write books, and um, he decided that the best way to raise funds for this new building project was to write a book um, and uh, mobilize the church membership to sell it far and wide to raise money. Well, he wrote the book, that was the easy part, but uh, then some people got to looking at the book and they said, you know, it has pantheism in there, and Adventism by that time already having developed something of a bureaucracy, that meant there had to be committee meetings, and so they had committee meetings, and they, you know, everybody read the book, and they looked at this, and they looked at that, and this was a, a fairly rare occurrence in Adventist history, certainly up to that point. Anyhow the um, the committee, the General Conference Executive Committee, was split fairly seriously as to the value of the book Living Temple. Um, so the Executive Committee did what every good committee person has learned to do. When you have a problem that you can't solve, you form a subcommittee and you dish it off to them. <laughs> and so the uh, subcommittee was set up, Uh, Let's see, Dr. Kellogg, Dr. Paulson, E.A. Sutherland, and William Warren Prescott, W.W. Prescott. And uh, this subcommittee of four looked over the book, and they came back, and here's the thing that's fairly unusual within Adventist circles. They came back with two reports, a majority report and a minority report. Three of the members, that would be Drs. Kellogg and Cress and E. A. Sutherland, said, We think it's a great book. William Warren Prescott said the thing's a disaster. Don't touch it. Well, <clears throat> That necessitated several more committee meetings. (laughs) If I sound skeptical, it's because I've sat in enough committee meetings in my life already. But anyhow, um, and eventually the decision was made. The the book was rewritten. I think it was three times rewritten. And amazingly enough, after three rewritings, it came back and it said virtually the same thing. And so eventually the executive committee said, no, we're not going to do it. We're just not going to do that. And so Dr. Kellogg faced with this challenge, um, said, okay, I'll print it myself. Well, he didn't actually have a printing press, you know, the old saying, uh, freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. And so he had to find somebody who would, who would print it for him. And so he went to the largest um, commercial printer in Battle Creek. And Asked them if they would print the book for him and of course as a commercial project They were happy to print anything that came through their door and so they said yes And they immediately set about preparing it for publication and by December 30 of that year They had the printing plates all made and they were sitting on the floor of the press room Ready to be printed as soon as I suppose New Year's Day was over Which brings us to December 30, 1902, when the Review and Herald burned down, because it was the commercial side of the Review that was going to print the book. (coughs) Um, They have changed policies um, on that issue, and that's been a blessing. Um, These are the uh, ruins of the Review building there. Uh, Several stories to be told about that, but not worth the trouble right now. So Dr. Kellogg had a spare copy of the manuscript. Can you imagine how much trouble that was (laughs) pre-Xerox? Anyhow, um, and so he took it off and he went to another printer and he got the book printed. Well, uh, that would have been early 1903, And uh, we'll continue our story and bounce ahead now to October of 1903 at the Autumn Council Session in Washington, Um, D.C. This is what I mentioned last time with Dr. Paulson thumping Daniels on the the chest saying, you know, if you don't get out of the way and, and let this new light, you know, carry the day, you will be rolled in the dust. Um... What Kellogg had done is he'd brought a lot of medical workers to Washington, D.C. Now, there were some, there were some pretty hard feelings going on because bear in mind, um, by, <clears throat> by October 1903, the General Conference had moved out of Battle Creek and the Review and Herald had moved out of Battle Creek. And there were a lot of people who were not happy about that, most notably those who remained in Battle Creek. Um, there were a lot of people, to be honest, who were not happy to be moving. It wasn't a good time to try and sell your house. (laughs) Too many people moving out of town all at once, and a lot of people lost a lot of money on those houses. (laughs) So there were some there were some uh, slightly disturbed feelings about that whole issue. Uh, Battle Creek College had moved out of town as well uh, and become Emmanuel Missionary College. Um, But nonetheless, autumn council met in. October in Washington, D.C., and Kellogg managed to have a sizable contingent of supporters back there. Uh, This is, of course, the occasion when Daniels was beside himself, practically, and just after being thumped on the chest by Paulson, he went into his house and he was met by someone and, I, you know, did they really say this kind of stuff? It's down, it sounds so melodramatic, I don't know. But this is Daniel's account of it, and I wouldn't want to accuse him of lying by any stretch. But anyhow, as he went through the door, he was met with the acclamation, Deliverance has come! That <laughs> seems a little melodramatic to me. But anyhow, um, they might just as well have said, Oh, he got a letter from Sister White, and that would have, would have covered it nicely to me. But the deliverance have, has come. That's a good line, too. Um, Ellen White had written these, there were two major letters in this packet that came that night, and she would written one of them in August and one in September, and the Lord had told her, no, don't mail them just yet until the time that, to mail them. And in these two uh, manuscripts, um, she clearly said, you know, Living Temple is wrong. <laughs> don't, don't go there. This is a, a terrible, bad thing. That was the occasion that turned David Paulson around. Um, he did not at that point, well, he never did, praise the Lord. He did not have the confidence to say, I will ignore what the Lord has said. Otherwise he would have ended up where Kellogg ended up. Okay. Um, well, that turned the, uh, that turned the whole occasion around and, um, there were some lessons learned. The uh, first lesson that came out of um, that particular experience was that the, the Lord still works for His people. Dr. Paulson learned that. It was kind of a hard blow to Paulson, actually. Um, Ed Sutherland learned that, too. It was a hard blow to him. Some of these guys, you know, had taken some pretty strong stands. But there was another lesson learned by other parties. And that was the old lady in California still has influence. And that was not welcome. (laughs) Uh, A couple years later, October 1905, A.G. Daniels wrote this. He said, There is a steady, secret, stealthy influence at work all through our ranks to create doubt regarding the messages of the spirit of prophecy now coming to this people. Our general conference brethren who attended the camp meetings met it everywhere. It is working like leaven, or a deadly contagion. Um, Kellogg had a number of, shall we say, lieutenants, who uh, did his bidding for him. In many instances, Kellogg was a pretty smart guy, and he'd mastered the art of having a, of a plausible deniability. You know, uh, this something big in American politics now. Uh, you never want to have anything that can actually be traced to you. You want to be able to say that, oh no, my underlings did that without consulting with me. Well, whether that's believable or not is another issue. But, you know, um, Kellogg often managed to stay at least arm length, arm's length away from this kind of stuff. But there were cases where he was caught too let's put it that way and he was going around and he was telling people you know we don't really need to depend on the spirit of prophecy as such because god has promised to give all of us his spirit okay fair enough what's the whole diversity of gifts thing about well, he didn't talk about that chapter. Um, but, uh, and so he was going around and he was promoting this. And his lieutenants were as well. And there were several other accusations that were going around. It was a contentious time period within denominational circles. Um, for any of you who are still young and pleasantly naive, there can be contentions that arise within the family of the Lord. And, um, and this was one of those times. One of the uh, favorite complaints or accusations that was made, was that Willie White was manipulating things behind the scenes. He was controlling what uh, Sister White was doing and hearing, and specifically what she was writing. And so consequently, you really couldn't trust many of these things that came from Sister White, even, you know, to pretend that you knew for sure it was from Sister White. It was just possibly from Willie White, or maybe he'd tweaked it a little bit on the way out the door type of thing. So, you know, don't get too carried away with the details. Well, some kind soul thought that they ought to tell Sister White that this problem existed. (laughs) Um, And so they told her. And she said, I learn reports are circulated that W.C. White manipulates his mother's writings. All have known how much W.C. White manipulates his mother's writings when he has been separated from me very much of the time for the years before this year, 1905. And we have, when we could get together, Planned much and done so little in issuing books. But I utterly deny the charges. Well, if you have any particular respect for her assertions and opinion, you'd think that that might settle it. Um, The amazing thing is that there are still people who profess great respect for her work and her opinion who do not consider this issue settled. I find this... (laughs) mind-numbing, but it's true. Now, specifically, this doesn't make sense to me because the whole experiment of manipulating Ellen White's writings had actually been tried already by someone who wanted to. And this would be her. Her name is Fanny Bolton. Um, You may recognize the the name. It appears in our Seventh-day Adventist church hymnal. She is the author of both the tune and the lyrics for the song, Not I, But Christ, which was an excellent prayer that she penned during a period of repentance and subsequently, unfortunately, seems to have forgotten uh, in later um, developments. Fanny, let's see, uh, I'm one screen ahead of myself there, sorry about that. Fanny was, um, Fanny was a literary assistant for Ellen White. Um, remember, this is pre-Xerox. <laughs> Much of her ministry was even pre-typewriter. Um, so, you know, that's a lot of work. Uh, Fanny was very good help. Ellen White always depended to a certain degree on people for grammatical corrections and things of that nature. The problem was that Fanny thought that she could improve Ellen White's work just a little bit more by going beyond mere grammatical issues. Um, This was brought to Ellen White's attention by none other than the Lord. She didn't know what was happening. The Lord told her. She confronted Fanny Bolton on five separate occasions. Ellen White was a patient soul. She was eventually taken away from all literary work. Ellen White said, I cannot, I will not trust you to touch any of my papers or any of my writings. (laughs) And at that point, The work that she was given, Ellen White didn't want to, um, you know, make her join the ranks of the unemployed, but the work that she was given did not set well with her. And so she voluntarily left Ellen White's employment. And um, as I recall it, she eventually ended up in a mental institution. Ellen White had some strong things to say about Fanny's circumstances and situation there. She said, I do not want any person who will feel it her prerogative to change the matter I shall give them into their own supposed beautiful learned language. I want my own style to appear in my own words. Fanny Bolton is a farce. I think that's the strongest derogatory term I've ever read from the pen of Ellen White in regard to a person like that. I don't know. There may be something else. What Fanny claimed she had done, or what confessed, I should say, she had done, was not really to change, you know... I might have said it doesn't really matter because all she was doing was, was putting in flowery little phrases here and dressing things up. She wasn't, she wasn't trying to change the content other than to, to dress it up and make it a little more literarily attractive, you see. No, I didn't want that. She said, no, thank you. <laughs> Don't touch my stuff. <laughs> Authors have a way of being protective about their work. Um, <clears throat> To me, this is, a, this is a great test case. This all happened long before any concern. Well, yeah, this happened before uh, the time period we're talking about. Let's put it that way. Um, Fanny had um, uh, claimed that she was uh, improving these, these things. Okay. Ellen White had, um, had one other comment I wanted to put on the screen for you about Fanny Bolton's case. She could represent me and my work as her originating and that this beautiful expression was hers and that that was hers. And she would make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Really? She wasn't, she wasn't trying to make it say anything different. She just wanted to say it more Prettily. <laughs> and Ellen White says, make it of none effect? Well, yes. Because the moment you start saying, oh, I wrote this, but, you know, yeah, yeah, it shows up in Ellen White's, then people are going to take that thought and say, well, ooh, well how do we know what she did right? How do we, oh, how do we know that you know, this wasn't written by someone else? And people have, have done this. Um, it's, I, I find it, Fairly bizarre. Um, there are still people today who will, with all seriousness, look you square in the face and say, you can't trust the later editions of the Spirit of Prophecy because they were manipulated by Willie White. Okay? Or A.G. Daniels. Uh, or Uriah Smith. The, um, my personal favorite, the one that I enjoyed quite the most, uh, was a fellow who asserted directly to my face that Uriah Smith had been responsible for many significant changes in the last revision of Great Controversy, which was the last revision was made in 1911. I took, the, took great pleasure in pointing out to the individual that Uriah had died in 1903. And so I suspected that it was probably the chapters on the State of the Dead that he would have been most interested in rewriting. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, well notice that statement though, make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Does that sound at all familiar? The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Now I'm not here to say that there's only one way to do that, but I do know of at least one way that the Spirit of Prophecy says is making it of none effect. Um, okay. Well, that was a way that people were trying to um, trying to destroy Ellen White's influence. About the same time, there was a, an interesting legal situation which had developed. Back in Battle Creek, now this is 1906. There had been this huge exodus in 1903. But there were still quite a few Adventists back in Battle Creek, and of course there were some tangible assets that the church couldn't take with them readily to Washington, D.C. So we have here a picture of the Dime Tabernacle. And in 1906, there was brewing a legal struggle over the ownership of the tabernacle. Up until this time, Seventh-day Adventist churches, the Dime Tabernacle just simply being average in this case, Adventist churches were owned by local boards of trustees, and in the Battle Creek case, there was a board of trustees, I believe there were seven members and uh, you know, this would include like the elders of the church and whatnot and they were the it was that board of trustees that was the legal body that actually held the title to the church. Um, that was important in the early days of the Adventist work there had been some some problems, you know, there was, there was one guy who said, oh, you can, you know, build the church here on my property. And then later he apostatized. And since the church was firmly on his property, he now owned the, well, he always had owned the church and he turned it into a saloon. And that was, <laughs> that wasn't good. And so they said, no, you know, we really can't afford to do that. We need to, we need to have proper legal ownership. And this is the way it was done. They had these these boards of trustees. Well... <clears throat> There were seven members on that board, and one of them was getting old and wanted to retire. Now, as it turned out, because at that particular point in time, there had been this huge exodus, most of the people who remained in Battle Creek were associated in one way or the other, most of the Adventists who remained in Battle Creek were associated one way or the other with the sanitarium. And three of the board members and the ownership of the Dime Tabernacle were actually fairly uh, pro-sanitarium in their thinking about some of the conflicts that were waging within the church. Um, And there was serious concern that if this one gentleman retired... His replacement might be the swing vote that would effectively place the Dime Tabernacle under the the sanitarium's control. This would not be the first time something like this had happened. In 1902, Kellogg and A.T. Jones had actually led uh, an effort to replace A.G. Daniels as General Conference President. They wanted him out of the picture because Kellogg was Kellogg did not get along well with Daniels for a variety of reasons, some of which were Daniels' fault. We do have genuine, certified flaw flawed people in this church, and Daniels had some flaws, and Kellogg uh, focused on those. And Kellogg had his fair share of flaws, and so Kellogg wanted Daniels out, and he tried to engineer getting him voted out um, in between sessions at the. Uh, at the general conference level. So there was this concern. Ellen White wrote a letter to Dr. Cress. remember him from our last uh, meeting. She said, I have seen that the leaders in the medical work in Battle Creek will try to secure possession of the tabernacle. Their scheming is so subtle that I greatly fear that this may be accomplished. Um, do you remember the story of... Elijah telling the king what the Syrians were going to do all the time and the Syrian king getting a little, a little upset with all that. It, it, it's very annoying <laughs> when, when the, the prophet keeps messing up your plans. Um, a little later she wrote again, According to the light given me, unless a decided stand is taken to safeguard the tabernacle in Battle Creek, theories will be presented in it that will dishonor God and his cause. Elder A.T. Jones and Dr. Kellogg will make every effort possible to get possession of the tabernacle in order that in it they may present their doctrines. We must not allow that house to be used for the promulgation of error until our work is done in Battle Creek. February 1907. Um... Things were clearly getting out of hand from Kellogg's point of view. (laughs) Something had to be done to muzzle this woman out in California. She was really, really messing up his plans. What to do? What do you do when the prophet of the Lord is fighting against you? (laughs) Well, one good recommendation might be repent. But... Dr. Kellogg wasn't interested in that at the moment. And so someone came up with a plan. They said, you know, what we need to do is discredit this woman. We just need to cut her off at the knees. What we need is one really clear, obviously mistaken testimony from Ellen White. We just need one that will just... Cut it off. It would be even better if it was, you know, if it showed that she was influenced by someone else. How could we possibly get one of those? Well, okay, hold that thought. There had been other things happening in Battle Creek. Meanwhile, Dr. Kellogg's uh, nonprofit. Michigan Benevolent Association was under investigation for financial irregularities. Mismanagement may be too strong a term there, I don't know. But there, was, uh, there were some concerns, there had been some questions raised, and Dr. Kellogg had said, oh, we're entirely transparent, we're above board here, why don't you set up a committee and you can investigate this, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this, uh, no problem at all. And so a 15-member committee had been had examined the corporate records And finally, came back and they said, there seems to be no problem. There's a favorable verdict here. Well, one member of that committee was Frank Belden, Ellen White's nephew. Now, take that thought, take the other thought, bring them together. Late February, 1907. Out in California, a letter arrived from Battle Creek. It was an interesting letter. It was an eyewitness account of bribery or possibly hush money being paid to Belden. He was on that committee, you know. There were details included. Specifically, a check for $1,324.08 was drawn up for Dr. Kellogg one morning delivered to his house And that afternoon, Frank Belden's bank book, which he left carelessly lying on a desk temporarily, was seen with the same amount listed as a deposit. Well, Belden was up to his eyebrows in all this scheming about the Battle Creek Tabernacle. This is extremely damaging information. The only thing that was in any sense irregular about this letter was that it it was anonymous. And even that was attended to to a degree because there was a separate slip of paper along with the letter that said, if you check with this person, they will be able to verify this and this person will verify that. And once you know those two facts, then you'll know that the whole must be true. It was, it, was, it was kind of strange, but very damaging information for Frank Belden. That was late February, early March, 1907. A letter from Elmshaven arrives at Battle Creek. Alan White's testimony condemns Belden for accepting improper payments from Kellogg. Ellen White describes a bank book she was shown in Visions of the Night. Belden produces his bank book, and it has no such entry. The local bank denies receiving any such deposit. Ellen White's reputation goes down in flames. Kellogg and associates gain control of the dime tabernacle. Uh, actually, none of that ever happened. <laughs> I had you going there. I couldn't believe you were that quiet. Okay. (laughs) None of that ever happened. Let's try that slide one more time. Early March, 1907. Frank Belden, the author of the anonymous letter, eagerly awaited a condemning letter from his aunt. It never came. (laughs) The Tabernacle Board of Trustees transferred ownership of the church to the West Michigan Conference. Ellen White was not interested in the information the anonymous letter contained. It may or may not have been fact. It turns out it wasn't. We have no record that that the Lord told her that it wasn't true. She just simply didn't care for the source. She didn't need that source. She had one already. And it had been working quite nicely for several decades. So why change it? Frank Bilden was seriously miffed. (laughs) This was not a good thing at all. Um, This process of transferring the membership, the ownership of the church, not the membership, the ownership of the church, this had never been done before the churches, all Adventist churches, had been owned by these boards of trustees. In this particular case, because of these particular challenges, it was felt best to transfer it to the legal corporation of the West Michigan Conference. That's the first time that was ever been done, that that was ever done. Uh, That is the standard operating procedure for all Adventist churches today. Um, you may or may not know that, but your local Adventist church is not owned locally. It's it's actually owned by your conference um, legal entity, and um, it's one of those things that had had never been done, and it seemed like a, a good solution to the problem at the time. I would say that overall, it's been a good response to the to the challenges that that were posed. Um, I also have to be honest, just for the sake of making one quick point and say that there are a few isolated cases where I think it worked out, unfortunately, that the ownership was held as it was. And I think that there are some few cases that I'm aware of where I feel that a wrong was done to some people in a local situation which they were unable to prevent because of that question of ownership. Why do I even bother to mention that? Because I I think it's important to understand that God's people are still people. We, you know, our policies, I I wish you well in finding an absolutely perfect policy that will fit every case, every time, everywhere. I might recommend the Ten Commandments, but beyond that, I don't have very many recommendations to go go with, okay? if you're going to work with any group of people, you're going to find at some point that a policy comes up that that is unfavorable to you, and maybe unjustly so. I have a saying in my classroom. <clears throat> um, I don't know. I don't know if I was using this for you guys, Mel and Sonny. Do you remember rule number one? Don't? Nah, I think it was after your time. Okay. All my recent students know rule number one. Life ain't fair. <laughs> that's, that's rule number one. You know, life ain't fair. It's going to happen sometime, brother. You might as well get used to it. Quit whining. <laughs> it's just, just the way it goes. Okay. Now, a little more interest here in how this was done. Evidently, there were some legalities, or they just simply chose to take the course. I'm not exactly sure. But this process of transferring the... Mem- the keep saying membership, transferring ownership of the church required three meetings, and the meetings were open for all members of the church. At the um, the first of these meetings, the record is that Belden Belden shouted accusations for most of the meeting. (laughs) He was was an unhappy boy. (laughs) At the second meeting... Someone made a, what's known as parliamentary procedure. You remember parliamentary procedure, Mel? You were there for that, weren't you? Didn't we do that, Sonny? Oh, yes, you did. (laughs) I always took my English kids through parliamentary procedure. It's a good thing to learn. Uh, We have what we call housekeeping measures. And some good soul had stood up and said, Mr. Chairman, I move that no one be allowed to speak from the floor for longer than five minutes on any one topic. Second, and they voted that through. This was not going to deter Frank Belden. In that second meeting, he spoke 34 times, and he took his five minutes to the second every single one of those times. <laughs> he, was, he was an unhappy boy. Um, the third meeting came around at which the action was to be finally voted upon. One of the, um, one of the board members, the trustees, was an elderly saint by the name of George Emadon. And George had been working for the review in Battle Creek since 1853. Uh, what was this? 1907. 54 years he'd been there. He knew Ellen White very well. Uh, actually, um, well, skip those details. But anyhow, he knew, he knew Ellen White very well. And so as they gathered at the, uh, at the meeting for this last occasion, he was distraught. He knew this was going to be a a knockdown dragout drag-out in the vernacular. And the story is that he was wringing his hands and repeating over and over and over. And he said, Oh, if only Sister White were here. If only Sister White were here. She, however, was in California. Unlikely that she would put in an appearance. Ten minutes before the meeting was to begin... The, there was a knock at the door, and the Western Union telegraph boy said, uh, I have a message here. And it is, according to the White Estate, and I trust they would know these things, the shortest testimony ever written by Ellen White. It said, Philippians 1 27 28, signed Ellen G. White. <laughs> That's short. And so as the meeting began, they, um, they opened with this word of scripture. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition but to you of salvation and that of God. Um, The meeting that night finished up successfully. The Battle Creek Tabernacle was transferred into the ownership of the West Michigan Conference. And Dr. Kellogg never had the opportunity to preach pantheism or anything else in the Battle Creek Tabernacle. What's the take-home lesson from that? You know, I'm just silly enough to be willing to take the spirit of prophecy and the Bible the way they read. There may be things I don't understand. But I refuse to jump to the conclusion that they're wrong. (laughs) I can live with not understanding. To assume that they were wrong would be fatal. Um, Let us not make of none effect the testimony of the Lord. Uh, Let us have confidence. I hope that that little story maybe bolsters your confidence. Not that I knew that you needed it, but in case you did. And that's it. So why don't we stand for a word of prayer? <clears throat> Father, there are many more things in sacred history that might be of value, might be of blessing to us, and we help. We ask that you would help us to find them and discover them for ourselves at the very time we need them. You've assembled quite an armory of weapons for our use, to give us confidence, to give us instruction, to give us reproof when we need that. And Father, again, we would not want to turn our back in the day of battle when you've given us weapons with which to fight. We pray that you will... Bless our understanding bless our determination that we might be a blessing to others that we would spread as a healthy contagion belief and acceptance and commitment and devotion to your word to your cause to your instructions father it's confusing out there sometimes many times Sometimes it looks so simple to look at history and all oh, the lessons are clear there. But Lord, we pray that you would give us discernment and help us to understand them today. There are accusations and misleading theories. And new light, falsely so-called, plenty to choose from available for us today. Give us wisdom that we might reject it And as Ellen White did with that letter, to roundly ignore it and continue with the source which has proven to be faithful for so many centuries and millennia. And Father, we pray that you would deepen our commitment, help that our lives, through whatever means you call us to individually, would become increasingly an agitating influence within the church and without Indicating that the gospel cannot be contradicted. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.